and welcome to Politricking with myself, T.D. Madia. This is episode 19 of season 3 of a politics podcast brought to you by Eyewitness News. I said to you a few weeks ago, I want to celebrate different women in our country. Diverse women, powerful women, women doing important work towards building this country. So last week with Lindy Mazubugo, I'm very excited about who I have in studio with me this week. I before before I even tell you who it is, I watched this guest at a seminar very recently. He's already laughing. I, I watched this guest at a seminar a few weeks ago and the announcement she made upon arrival on the stage is she's not alone. Ufige Narago you know, the, those who've come from the past, whatever God there is, and she walks with that energy and with those people at all times, and they were in the room. And I love that in that moment, she paused, and she told you who she is by telling you who she's walking with on that stage. I am joined this week by the Executive Director of the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls. They call it OLAG. I'm joined by its di- Executive Director, I said, uh, Sisku Gundebele. Thank you so much that for is, joining us. Thank you, Tidi, for having me. Uhama Nabagini and everybody. I'm, I'm, I do not work alone, <laughs> and I think it's important that we acknowledge who we're with all the time. I think that's what stood out for me. Then I listened to you speak about education mm. and about trauma and I I think if I'm honest I struggled a little bit because what happened to you is not something I ever yeah. thought about myself because mm. I was part of the seminar that you were having right. with Miss um, Oprah Winfrey I did not think that I'd find myself pausing I don't even think the event was about that I was a little bit confused <laughs> so I was there saying oh they're having such deep conversations mm. and you obviously spoke about your experiences with the school mm. um I want my audience to get to know you and your journey right. and how it is that today you are an executive director. Because that's a big deal, by it, the way. It is a it's big a deal. It's a damn big it deal. It is a big deal. Let's not lie. It, it took me a long time to realize it's a big deal, but it is a big deal. I'm glad you know it. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the journey to get there. Mm. Um, I don't know where to start, CD, but I always start from home. Um, I always say to people, I was born in Soweto, but I'm not from Soweto. Uh, my family was from uh, Ingut. Um and of course through a party structure they got to Soweto. Um, and so while I own that I'm born there, my being is not from there, it's from KwaZulu-Natal. Mm. And it's important for me because I think every story that I tell goes back to how I was raised. So I was raised by this amazing couple um, my mother was a at that time we can only we could only be a community nurse or a teacher or you know yes. um, she was a community nurse and anyway um, and she married this amazing father who unfortunately struggled with alcoholism and passed away at the age of 43 but I always say when people tell traumatic stories about alcoholism my father was a template of what I think a man should be like flawed as he was he was just most loving but what they taught me as the only girl was to be myself. Um, I traveled the world before I traveled the world because my mother loved books. Oh, yes. The child who grows up with a book, it's a magical place, yes. Yeah, and she had this thing of encyclopedias, and I could never understand why this then would read them. <laughs> you know? And now you realize why it's important um, for, 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 for children, because that's when I became ambitious. So I wasn't going to be a teacher, I wasn't going to be a nurse, I was going to be a doctor, I was going to be something different. And but I think I had the gene of community service from her mm. um, because she founded the Cheshire Home in Soweto, 
um, and I went to my my life was characterized by a lot of struggles. I went to another seminary. I think I was one of the first group that was expelled at another seminary in 1980 because I you know, we revolted against the principal. I don't think I understood then what that means. But in retrospect, I've always had agency. Mm. I've always knew, known what I want and what I feel I deserve. Went to university, got expelled at Fort Hay. You have a track record. I know, I have a track record. <laughs> but I think it got me to where I am yeah. to understand um, what it means to, to struggle, but to also understand that as a young black woman, I cannot give up. So that has always been my thing, that firstly, education is very important. Mm. So when I worked in the Department of Education for 18 years, it's because I believed that education is important. I'm not sure about the curriculum, but I'm talking about Oh, I education. want to talk about the curriculum, <laughs> but I'll wait. I'm going to be patient. Yes. You know, um, so I've always done everything that is not curriculum, because I think we are more than the subject. Um, so I want the full-on journey. So you appointed yes. in 2019. Yes. How did that come about? Did you apply? How does it work? How does one become the director <laughs> of OLAC? You know, I was sending How do you my get Oprah to be your boss? I mean, it's <laughs> a was, big deal. I was uh, on my, at my fifth year at the Save the Children South Africa. And then I got this call from one of the recruitment agencies, and they said to me, oh, we'd like to see if you can consider being the head of the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy. And I'm like, I guys, you're not serious. I was a deputy director general. Now you want me to be a principal? <laughs> <laughs> and remember, the school was founded when I was in the department. Mm -hmm. So, and I, you know, they said, can we please send you the profile? Because it's not just a principalship, it's, you know, it's, it's bigger. And I said, okay, send it to me. Um, and they invited me for a conversation with the recruiters. Mm. I realized that they did that. It was my first interview. Mm. Um, because I spoke about what my belief in education is. And it turns out that our values resonate. I went through eight interviews. I wish I could say Oprah picked me. I went through eight interviews interviews by the fourth i knew i wanted to be the executive director of mm. OLEC. um i knew that everything that i worked for was taking me to that role and i knew i was going to fight for it i didn't know how many candidates they had uh, but by the time i got to the eighth one and i met oprah i said to her make a decision Sisengek. <laughs> i want in <laughs> and let's speak about the work though mm. of OLEC. Mm. um you produce, I think, year and year, 100% pass, uh, pass rates as far as metric is concerned. What goes into building an OLED girl? Um, what is the work? What is the, mm. what is the cornerstone, the guiding mm. light, really, yeah. of the school and the work it does? I, for me, OLEG is a model of what I believe education should be like in South Africa. Um, at OLEG, we put the child at the center, and we always say that because everything that we do in the school is in the service of the child so whether you are a, we have social workers um, because we understand where our children come from and where we come from uh, we have um, psychologists we've got clinical and educational psychologists again because unless you remove the barriers it doesn't matter what curriculum you have it won't make it won't grow the child you know it's like i always make an example of having good seeds but the ground is not fertile. So you can throw it and the seeds won't grow. Uh, we've got exceptionally good teachers um, whose life is devoted to the success of 
the girls, but we also have committed girls who understand why they are at Oleg and who want to succeed. It doesn't mean that not teenagers no, they, they get to stuff, but they are driven. Um, you know, so we put the child at the center, and you know, we make sure that we remove as many barriers as possible for the child to thrive. But we make her understand that leadership, self-leadership, is important. Um, so, what makes an older girl is a child who's self-driven, who self-leads, uh, because we allow them to run the committees, but who's also values-driven. Um. When did you realize that the barriers mattered? It is one thing, mm. at least from the outside, one imagines a school like Oleg offers world opportunities. Mm. We've seen some of the girls studying abroad. Mm. We understand it is world-class education. But these are girls from disadvantaged communities. Mm. When did you realize that the barriers that you speak of, that requires a psychologist, mm. social workers, were part and part were a necessity for the curriculum, for what you offer. Was there a point where you went, actually, there's a gap here, we need to address this? Or was this always part of the vision from the beginning? Actually, it started when I was in the Department of Basic Education. Um, and that's why I always say I never did curriculum, because I always felt that uh, the majority of children in South Africa go through a lot. You know, whether it's poverty, whether it's a gender-based violence. So to put them in a classroom, you can have the best teachers and it just doesn't work. So I've always felt that there is something bigger in education than just the textbook. And so when I was in the Department of Education, I was one of the uh, promoters of the CAN Support for Teaching and Learning. It's a system um, that ensures that We've got 12 million children in schools. It's a captured audience. Mm. So if you have, um, when we started the vaccination program with the Department of Health, because at that time I said to Dr. Um, Mutsalidi, you vaccinate them, you've, you like <laughs> almost a third of the population. That's taking care They're, of, yeah. Exactly. Your home affairs, why do you want to go children to go and queue, bring the services in the school so that the child considers? So that has always been my vision for education. So when I got the job at Oleg, I was like, okay, this is something I can see if it works, firstly, but something that I can share with other schools so that we promote true education and true learning. What would it take to see that model spreading out beyond. Mm. Um, you worked at basic education, so you know how dire the mm. problem is. You know how many children are actually in classrooms mm. and suffering. Yeah. What would it take for that model to spread? The first one, you know, I, there's nothing that frustrates me is um, we're going to elections next year and every politician will say, education is a priority. And in the administrations that I've worked through, because I was in education for 16 years, um, that has always been the thing. And I, I remember saying to Minister Mutsekha one time that until in government, when they go and report in cabinet, the first thing that they report on is what they're doing for schools. So if you have the Department of Public Works, if education is a priority, you say how many schools have been repaired, built, toilets built. If you have the Department of Health, you know, what have you done in the schools? Then you can report on the other things. So until government truly realizes that education is a priority, and until you get government officials who are committed to making sure that education happens, because it can't be 18 years, 
down the line, 20 something years, we still have pit toilets. Mm. Yes, we still have pit toilets. It's, 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 for me, it's, not, it's lack of commitment. Uh, it's lack of people who are not, I don't think it's because of resources. I think we've got an incredibly amazing private sector, but we've got a lot of money in this country if we direct it well. So I think it's going to take so more of than pronouncement. It's lack of political will. It's lack of uh, it's corruption. Uh, where to build the toilet would take fifty thousand. When it, you, you know, it's just all of those things. Um, yeah, so it's it's a lot. I know you didn't touch on the issue of curriculum earlier. You kind of set it aside. Mm. But I want to speak about curriculum. Mm. As a young South African, I think I still qualify as young. As a young South African, I take great issue with mm. the curriculum. Mm. I think upon democracy, education was overlooked. Mm. It was one of the most vital avenues that we needed to look at in order to set the country straight. Mm. Going into curriculum, we didn't even teach South African history mm. at the advent of democracy. Mm. And to date, it's still found lacking to some degree in our schools. Mm. I don't know if I'm driving you back to a conversation where you say it's a lack of political will, mm. but your sense of a country that has failed to do that, what is what, what does it say to you? It, it says a number of things. You know, one of the things that when I got to Oleg, I said I was going to do is to keep the curriculum stable. We've never had a stable curriculum. It was OBE, it was this. And for me, it's choose a struggle <laughs> and make a struggle work. Um, and the second thing, I think, as we got into the transition, I don't think we understood or still understand what's important for the liberation of our people. Um, part of it is telling our stories. Um, part of it is making sure that um, we understand where we come from. So history is important. Um, our languages are important. For me, it's a tragedy that uh, all the of other official lang other languages are third, fourth choice. You know, the if you go to a school, it's English and Africans in the main. Yeah. You know, and if you get Zulu and you're in a Model C school, it's taught by Mariki. This is true. <laughs> Who can't pronounce the words right? But similarly, an argument can be made that we are also of a system where we are told our children cannot read for meaning, can't attach proper meaning to reading. Mm. So we still have that issue, right? Mm. And on top of that, when you listen to the teachers who are teaching our children, they too struggle to grasp language. Because mm. the system that taught them was mm. a... A, a an oppressive system mm. was not meant to allow them to thrive mm. and then we haven't injected enough in our educators to try and make sure we prepare the next generation better mm. it's partly it's that you see i with everything that i think um apartheid had one of the things that i will always remember is that when i was in sub a i was starting to read R -E -E -O -O. you know the basics um and we had teacher colleges that not only taught content but also taught how to teach. Um, again, so when we when we transitioned, we removed those fundamentals and started using universities for teachers. Mm. They are great, but they don't know how to teach. Um, but you also have teachers that sometimes, and not all of them, we've got amazing teachers in yes, South Africa, like you're teachers. saying, uh, some of them are of, obviously a replication of a system that is, mm. that is already poor, but others just don't care, it's a job, you know, so if I come to work, 
you know, I do that bit that I do. So it's, it's, it's a multiplicity of things. One is valuing teachers as teachers and ensuring that they get professional, ongoing professional support. And secondly, it's going back to basics, because there is no, you see, you can't expect children to, to read for meaning when there are no books in schools. That's true. You know, and there are no libraries in schools. You know, if you are fortunate to have a library that was donated by some donor and it's a mobile library, it's got about 50, 60 books. You don't have a, a practice even in the home of encouraging reading. And I hear people sometimes, when I was at Save the Children, they would say to me, you know, but you know, adults are not literate. I said, my grandmother was not literate, but my grandmother had every picture of a magazine and would tell a story and you start being interested in understanding what this is so there's a role there's a lot that needs to be happen outside of the classroom and inside the classroom if you understand what i mean mm, yeah. mm. before i forget i want to go back to your goals very quickly mm. with everything that is provided for them and offered at oleg they do come from disadvantaged mm. communities by and large mm. so they go back home how do you navigate that space where here one imagines it's a sheltered space, protected space, where mm -hmm. the environment enables learning mm -hmm. at, at its maximum uh, impact, I imagine. Then they go back home to where they would have been um, vulnerable to abuse or mm -hmm. seeing crime or feeling unsafe or whatever it is. How do you navigate the two? Um, firstly, we've got social workers. So from the time we recruit the girls, our social workers have visited every family. And so we understand the context where the child comes from. Um, and we work with the family in creating an enabling environment. Um, but secondly, one of the things that the Oleg girls have taught me and many other girls who are similar to Oleg, because even though we have so few, there's many of them who are like that, who are like that it's resilience. And surviving in spite of their circumstances. Um, and so we have that network of care where it's, it's continuous, the social workers help us. Some of them even have to remove from abusive homes and we place them in uh, homes like Kids Haven, etc. Places of safety. Places of safety, you, you know. Um, but also we work with the parents all the time. So we meet with the parents regularly, firstly for them to find ways of meaning um, and feeling valued because sometimes then this girl comes back and she's miss know it all. <laughs> yeah, what's <laughs> yeah, being I can imagine. Yeah, but we always tell to to say to parent, you're a parent, parent. And the best example I can say of how I knew whatever it is that our girls have and we do works is when we had COVID because we went full online. Of course. Um, and we had one of the best results still. And then how do they stay authentic? Because there is mm -hmm. a thing about your environment. Like if it's a mm -hmm. Kokazi, mm -hmm. you still want to be able to feel like your mm -hmm. girl Kokazi mm -hmm. and you can relate to your people. Mm -hmm. But again, on a day-to-day -day basis, you're at the school mm -hmm. that is world-class. And then you must come back home. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, you, I'd, I'd imagine when you're a teenager, you want to be able to still fit, fit yeah. into an environment. So you must have some level of authenticity. Yeah. Is, the, is that a thing that you're mindful of as a school to try and make sure that they remain authentic as they evolve? Mm. It's a, it, it is a thing. Um, I, would be, I would not be honest if I say they don't struggle, even fitting back. 
because they are known as the Oprah girls. Of course. And so they, you know, so they don't feel accepted sometimes by, even when they go to university. Um, but I think it's important for them also um, to remain authentic. So we, we always make sure that they are continuously aware of who they are. For us, like, so through, we, speak, we offer four languages. We offer English, African, Sitwa, Isisutu, and Isisutu because we're a small school. Um, and so we encourage them to to continue being who they are and to relate to their parents because most of the time, the parents themselves are what you know, they see themselves less than. But it is a real struggle. It, it, it's a balance that they have to manage all the time mm. and that um, we can encourage um, but sometimes we don't have control of. We always hope that whatever it is that we bring in them as part of their values makes them recognize that they have a responsibility. And and not just responsibility, they deserve to be part of their communities. Mm. They belong in their communities. That they have a right to a sense of they belonging. They have a right to a sense of belonging, yes. It is Women's Month, it's mm. Women's Day. You are a Women's Day feature. Um, your sense of the plight of women in this country, the struggles of women. Mm. Uh, August 9th should celebrate, should rip, should mark some celebration of sorts, mm. a spirit of defiance of the generation of 1956. When you look around you, with the work that you do, of course, mm. um, what comes to mind? Oh, Mostly it's depression. Um, depression because I think that the situation for women has not changed, does not change, it gets worse. Um, it's depression because I also see how, even as young girls, in spite of the fact that we are so many years into our democracy, they're still left behind. Whether you look at the rate of teenage pregnancy, uh, you, you know, sometimes I don't even know how we call it that, because a girl who's 16 is rape. Um, and, and I think the system conspires against the success of women. So that's my depression. But sometimes I get very excited because then I meet the titties. I yes, meet... You're very <laughs> 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 I'm joking. Yes. Not true, because I meet amazing young women who, in spite of everything, succeed. Who, in spite of what the world wants to define them as. I mean, I'm sitting here next to you. I, I wouldn't have thought in, when I was as young as you, I would be in this platform where you interview so many politicians, but also that you are so much aware of what is happening. Um, and it's a celebration for me because then my girls have someone that looks like them, yeah. that can they look out to. So, and I think if we as women continue, number one, celebrating each other, but forming this ripple effect where we grow as a movement, you know, you were talking about Lindy, um, and we, we, we grow as a woman that young girls can say, you know, I, because even all the girls are not perfect, by the way. You, 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 you know, so they go through stuff, you know, sometimes we let them go. But it's how you rise that's important. So I get depressed, I get frustrated, I get angry as a, as, as a black woman to say, even now, I'm still fighting for the same things that my mother fought for. But I always say I'm triumphant 
because I'm now the executive director of Ole. Oh, that's, like I said to you earlier, that's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful deal. thing. And <laughs> so to see, and it's, 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 it's as much about the title, because I, like I said, I still like executive director, but it's also about the impact yes. that I get to have. I impact 350 girls a year. Every day and beyond, and beyond, yeah, because you've impacted me. Impact. I watched you and I thought that's who we want. I want to be that's a black woman I respect and admire. Um, Thank you. The importance of mentorship as well. Yeah, so Google. Um, yes. in my head, you must sell hope to a degree. Yeah, um, let's speak about the importance of mentorship in your eyes. Mm. I, I like what you're saying. You know, I even when I was at Save the Children, I used to say to them we're selling hope we're not so we're not talking about uh children who have been left behind we're talking about hope um i say even to my girls that as much as you you know because they used to be called mission girls you know you come from a disadvantage and i said you know you you your your distinguishing thing is that your family is furthest from opportunity <laughs> you know so you are you are not that you are not poverty you, you, you know you have been impacted by poverty and so it's important that when you look at yourself, your mission is aspirational, not that I'm a disadvantaged girl. Importance of mentorship, again, the, uh, um, the, the blessing that we have with Ms. Winfrey is that when they, they migrate to universities, I'm going to answer it in two ways. When they go to universities, we've got mentors at each and every university where the girls are, who receive them, guide them, um, and help them to, to, to navigate. But as a woman who has always been surrounded by women, uh, whether, you know, worked at the United Building Society, Sis Joan was there when I was in the department, Sis Palisa, always understood and appreciated the role of mentors, um, how they guide you and how they make you um, look at yourself as someone that matters. So mentorship is very important. I said to you earlier before we started that I want to end the school. I'm coming. Uh, and, uh, because I'm coming I really, yes, exactly. From a, a, a perspective of the career, but your own journey, because I'm sure your story is just as interesting as oh, theirs, yeah. and they learn to see themselves. Flow, yeah. Yes, and, and also from what can then, what can we then do um, to make sure that our girls have this network all the time of women that they can tap into um, without being patronized. Because all the girls that I mentor, I give them homework. I'm very clear. I only take two, three girls a year yeah. for mentorship, but it's hard work. You're so not going to tap, you're not going to tap me and say, oh, well, you must come to the party, because that's how you grow. Sis Gugu, selling hope in this country doesn't feel like a hopeless mission to you. When you look at, now I'm asking about the politics, because mm. the core of this podcast is right, political. Right. Um, selling hope in a country like ours doesn't feel like a hopeless mission. It does, but I don't think we have a choice, Tzidi. Um I think it's very easy, and I'm at that stage now, where I feel very disillusioned. I'm thinking next year, should I, should I not? No, you must vote. No, wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> I don't care who people vote for you. No, I always yeah. end up voting, but it's always, and I get upset because I was the politics now. It's for me as someone who, who grew up as a rebel rouser, who grew as a rebel rouser for something. And yeah. I see that people, as people are not standing for anything. You know, I don't know. So if you vote for Mkumbe Nihai, chances are you voted for all of them because you blink. 
someone has moved chairs, someone has been expelled this side, they are now recruited this side. Somebody's launching a new party. You know, so I'm thinking, like, what's yeah. the principle? You, you, you know, what is the principle, you, you know, that the parties are standing for? And then I realized, oh, but it's in my hands, it's my country. You, you, know, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like we deserve the leaders we have. Very often they tell you, you do. Uh, we are seeing how things metros with coalitions. Yeah. The voters created yeah, that. Exactly. But I also don't blame the voters. I, I don't, I, I, I don't too, but I think we, we, we have a history that I think we need to go back to of fighting for what we want. My parting shot, mm. um, your hopes and wishes for women in our country. I wish for stability of the mind. You know, I, I wish that we can be assured that, number one, you'll be alive tomorrow. Um, you can be assured that whatever it is that you are, wherever you are, it matters. Um, I wish for safety and I wish for prosperity. Safety and prosperity. Thank you so much. That's Gugu Ndebele, who is the executive director at the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls, who's joined us this week. They say strong women, or should I say powerful women, may we know them, may we be them. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tzidi. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast and a special thank you to Lerato Herfila, Sitengiti, and Teddy Sotwala. For Eyewitness News, my name is TD Madia. Mm -hmm.